With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, welcome along to Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. I'm not going to say it. I nearly sung it again. I know I did it on the last episode. I'll stop myself. Uh, but just to say happy holidays. Hope everybody's well and looking forward to this kind of lovely time of the year. Um, I hope it is lovely for you, wherever you are choosing to listen to this. Thanks so much for choosing to listen to another episode of me selfishly divulging into uh, random conversations. Well, they're not rand- random. They're, there's intent there and there's research done. But that's the thing sometimes is I forget that people might listen to the podcast because I am so into the conversations that I'm having. I'm nosy. I want to know how it works. I want to know about people's choices. I sometimes go in with so many questions in my head that I almost sound a lot of the times like a bumbling buffoon. But uh, so I apologize. Um, And that's definitely going to be the case over the next couple of episodes. Uh, Because our latest Christmas present of a guest for you here on Soundtracking is the legendary Michael Mann. Michael Mann, who joins me to discuss his biopic Ferrari, which follows the personal professional struggles of Ferrari founder Enzo during the summer of 1957. Starring Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz, it has all the visceral thrills and visual thrusts that you'd expect from a Michael Mann film about very fast cars, but also real emotional punches, particularly in the performance of Adam's and Penelope's Enzo and his wife, Laura. I knew nothing about this story, about these people. Uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. The performances are extraordinary. Penelope Cruz has this real physical performance to it. If you see the film, and you definitely should see the film, the way that she kind of physically throws herself in and out of the bank when she's going to kind of do all the accounts and stuff, it's really, really brilliant. Uh, Shailene Woodley as well, we should also mention, is the other woman in Enzo's life. And Adam Driver just kind of takes this role and grabs it with both hands and really throws a brilliant performance into it. Uh, Ferrari scored by a good friend of the show, Daniel Pemberton, who provided the music in around about a week. That's Daniel for you. And we'll begin with his cue through the Poplars. Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you again. I'm very excited to talk to you about music because music is such an important part of your filmmaking. With Ferrari in particular, working with Daniel Pemberton, I wanted to ask first why he was the right man 
to sonically bring this story to life for you? The music in Ferrari is interesting in the sense that, except for a couple of period ballads, the score is very much by design integrated within the flow rather than kind of uh, collaterally coexisting with the, with the flow of the narrative. And, and Daniel Pemberton is a terrific composer. He's blindingly fast, which is spectacular. <laughs> and I was able to tell him in um, kind of a kind of a dramatic, almost emotionally dramatic terms, here's what I wanted the music to do, almost like I was directing an actor. And he would take that and he would like get really close the first time and then we'd make some, you know, small modifications and then maybe adjust some things in the mix. You know, so it was, it was great working with him. There's a couple of specifics I'd like to talk about within the film, if that's okay. The first of those is the first time we go to the cemetery, to the graveside of their son, and how musically the two characters have very different themes. So Enzo has a score that supports his presence there. And then when Laura arrives, it's very, very different. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? The music, uh, the music in, in, is very tonal. For both Enzo and Lara in, in, when they're in the cemetery, but the, the the most startling is the is the entry right at the end of Lara in the cemetery of the mass, which then transitions us into the church, and then the way that that music almost plays a, a counterpoint against the non-music, what really is music, of the Maserati race car, and the way the two one piles on top of the other with uh, and how that corresponds with the the religiosity of the mass and yet the irreverence of everybody with stopwatches clocking the clocking the, <laughs> yeah. the Maseratis to find out whether or not they've broken the record. So the record. it all has about four or five different layers on top of it. And with the you know with different pieces of music it would all come apart and not work. But it was a very tricky thing to mix together and, and design all these different layers of both activities and the way the Mozart works with the with the sound of the Maserati.
the choice of of opera? Was that down to research? Because I know how authentic you were to so much of their world. The choice of opera was, was very specific. Uh, I listened to a lot of different arias. And then perhaps not by accident, the story of the Traviata is, is, is kind of a, is, is parallel in a way to without being an analog to what's going on with, um, you know, with Enzo and Lara. But the it's a purely emotional choice in that particular uh, in that, in that particular area. It just moved me emotionally. In the Traviata, the uh, uh, the father talks the son into abandoning his true love because she's not worthy of him. He does so. He regrets it. Meanwhile, she's sick and failing. He realizes his mistake. He comes to her and tells her. He apologizes. I'm sorry. We're going to go live in Paris and everything's going to be wonderful for the rest of our lives. And it isn't because she's too late and she dies. Okay. So it sounds very <laughs> operatic when I say it. But that's the kind of asynchronous way things actually work in life. When we try to correct our mistakes, we're usually too late. It usually does not work out. And in that sense, it's heightened emotionality, uh, operatic melodrama, that in fact is a pretty accurate reflection about the events of people's lives. And then I ask myself, what is opera? How does it work on us? Mm. And it's the overblown expression that's so large that we passively sit back in the audience as it washes over us, it kind of compels us to have recall and sensory memory of our own experiences in life. So then two things, so that's why I picked that particular one. But then what's occurring is I decided to shoot the opera singers as if they were the principals and the camera moves around them as if in a, almost a cinema verite fashion while they're while they're singing, it's not them being observed on the proscenium arch. We're right there, handheld on them. And then the people in the audience, our characters are static, but then we lie, we enliven their flashbacks. That was the plan for the whole of the uh, opera. And I've never shot opera before, and it was uh, it was fun to shoot, to shoot. Do you use music when you're writing? Do you create playlists? Do you have music around you as a creative inspiring tool? I usually find music while I'm while I'm writing or while I'm planning or pre-production. Uh, it sets an emotional tone to maybe some pivotal part of a scene and then as such becomes kind of a poetic modular of, uh, of, of certain feelings that I want the scenes to evoke. So, um, uh, and that way I could go back to it and and uh, re- re- hit the hits the refresh button on uh, here's how you, this is supposed to make you feel because music for me has the power to evoke the same feeling again and again and again uh, if it's, if it's a piece I, I really really like and I didn't have it in in Ferrari except for the aria the uh, I have had it in other other films I, I knew it was a Gaelic piece of music that I used in Mohicans that you know the harmony became the love theme, and its harmony became the the main theme. There, there's a uh, ballad by Jula de Palma that starts when Di Portago runs into the bedroom with Linda Christian, and then carries over into the transition into Lena Lardy. That 
that I really like a lot. And that's mm. uh, that kind of, I, I found that in post, but normally I'd look, be looking for something like that in prep. Tra le nuvole d'un grigio Improvviso cadde un raggio d'or E al tepore di quel nuovo sol È nato già un fior Un fior Sotto il sole dei tuoi occhi Un dolce incanto io sento in me Credo ancora nella vita se voglio bene a te. You mentioned Mohicans and it is, I think, one of the most beautiful, powerful scores of all time. Do you give yourself the luxury of listening to that as a piece of music, that score for Last of the Mohicans? I've listened to that score so many times. Um uh... It's able to very precisely and directly get me to a certain emotional place, and that that's how the whole of the movie's supposed to make you feel. So it, it it quantifies something that's totally emotional and qualitative. And I worked very, very closely with the uh, with with Trevor Jones on that piece. The um, it's based on something called the Gale, G A E L, and that we acquired. It's a contemporary piece of uh, Irish folk music, but in searching for it, I was listening to uh, French Celtic music. Uh, I mean, searching far and wide to find exactly the right. So I wanted something to have a momentum, almost like flamenco has a momentum, and and, and be kind of a, around in the sort of the repetition. Is that something that forms the extensive research that you do as a storyteller, finding music that fits within the genre, the narrative, the time frame of what story you're going to tell? Yes, and there, there was a, uh, a music clerk in, a, in uh, Tower Records <laughs> who I uh, struck up a conversation with 20 years ago and was uh, and I was really impressed with his, the, the breadth of his knowledge, he was uh, kind of a self-taught musicologist, <laughs> and now he teaches school in Nova Scotia, and I've been using him, Jeff Miller, and I've used him on every film, and I will tell <laughs> him, here's, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that, you know, this, uh, I'm looking for an opera, you know, and, and for, for Ferrari, and he'd read the script, we'd have some conversations, and then i start getting pieces of music kind of thrown at me, and, and we go through hundreds and hundreds of pieces to find to find stuff. Amazing. Uh, you know, the, the film I did that has probably the most interesting selection of somewhat obscure music is Manhunter. And that's started with a, um, a, a serial killer who was incarcerated when I met him named Dennis Wayne Wallace, who I based the character of Dalahide on. And he had a fantasy romance with 
a woman and killed to protect her. And, and none of this was objective reality. And in his mind, their love song was In a God of Vita by Iron Butterfly. And that's why that occupies the end of that, the end of that movie. You know that I'm loving you In a God of a Vida, baby Don't you know that I'll always be true Oh, won't you come with me And take my hand Oh, won't you come with me And walk But the Reds and there are some other and Shriekback, fairly obscure bands who maybe did one or two records that were just spectacular and nothing much ever happened. But the music of that film is, you know, it's a bit obscure, but it's uh, really interesting. This is what I learned from you last night was that every story that you tell starts in some kind of relationship or truth that you have with people. It's amazing. There's probably a comment on, on my inability to just make stuff up. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. Before we kind of run out of time, I mean, there are so many brilliant choices that you've made across your films, you know, whether it be, you know, we talked about the Audio Slave track last night in Collateral, but you also have that fantastic Groove Armada track, Hands of Time, when Jamie's in the cab with Jada. And it's a, an amazing choice of piece of music that is is almost could be like their, you know, their dance, their song, their piece of music, oh. if they were to take that relationship further. Could imagine it being the first dance at their wedding or something. Do you know what I mean? Is that your friend in Nova Scotia helping you with those choices, even back then with Collateral? Uh, no, the uh, <laughs> I was really I was really turned on by Audio Slave, and I became friendly with Tom Moretti, who is a guitarist and now a composer mm -hmm. who lives in Chicago and is quite uh, he's a good guy, very you know politically active and stuff. Embarrassed, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, the late lead singer. Chris Cornell. Chris, and Chris Cornell was very, very generous. Once upon a time, I was of the mind to lay your burden down and leave you where you stood. You believed I could.
um, later movies, he sent me some recordings for free. I've had I've had a lot of generosity. The uh, there's a percussive piece during a bank robbery of Heat, which Brian Eno gave me just to contribute. Wow. It's, it's percussion, but it's non, non kind of non-tonal. It's just repeats, so it doesn't intrude with anything. But it's like yeah. a subterranean spinal cadence that it has to it all the way through. talk about it last night but that end scene in in um in heat and elliot's score that he created specifically for that end scene you know where where the hat the, the hand is held and that look on pacino's face and elliot's score that comes in over that in that sense its purposes is is not very mysterious it had to be culmination it had to be a a uh kind of a dark celebration emotional dark celebration almost something spiritual about these two men standing there like that, like they're the only two men like each other on the whole planet. And their posture says everything with the lights and these planes coming in and, uh, you know, in, in some hyper-transient place, i.e. the approach apron to the airport with objects that aren't designed for human beings. There's nothing ergonomic about that place. People aren't supposed to be there. Those are those are they house equipment to make signals and lights flash. It's not for people. And here they are, and here's the planes, you know, and everything is kind of removed from them. So it's a very by design, a kind of a strange, transient piece of landscape. And they're just standing there like that. And then the uh and then a piece was meant to be spiritual comes in. That's so that was that was the idea of it. I've got to ask you about Heat 2. You mentioned it last night, you know, following on from writing the book, which is a kind of sequel, prequel to those characters in that world and how interested you are and where they came from and where he ends up, I guess. You said that you're you're writing the script. You're in the middle of writing the screenplay for Heat 2. Yes. Have you got a deadline? Have you set yourself a deadline of when that script's going to be done? You know, kind of leap from tall buildings or hit yourself on the head with a it requires real focus and, and, and concentration, usually starting in airplanes or, you know, hotel rooms. I don't actually say the studio. I'm sorry. I can only write this in 30, 35,000 feet. But <laughs> the best the best place for me to start really concentrating on something is a long plane ride. With that, you know, the socking in something. I usually like to go someplace transient, like be in a hotel with some view of cityscape out the window, and I could really kind of find it very easy to concentrate. 
but as soon as, as soon as possible, I want to shoot it next year. Yes. That's the best Christmas gift you could give us as well as this great new film, Michael. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you for your time. It's so great to chat to you about music. Yeah. And thank you again for your generosity last night with the wonderful Q&A. Thank you so much. A Merry Christmas when it comes. Thank you for your enthusiasm and all the smart questions. Really great. See you again. Bye, guys. From Daniel Pemberton score to Ferrari, that's build a wall. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Michael Mann. My huge thanks to Michael for taking the time to talk to me, especially as I'd done a Q&A and a kind of lifetime conversation with him at the BFI the night before. Ferrari is on general release on Boxing Day and obviously merits a trip to the cinema to appreciate it in all its glory, particularly these car scenes, whether it's a kind of test run around the uh, track in Monza or whether that's this kind of extraordinary race that takes you uh, through the beautiful and varied terrain of Italy. It's astonishing. Exciting news though about Heat 2 as well, folks, eh? Yes! Uh, and the guests are coming thick and fast this festive season with Taika Waititi returning to soundtracking for a third time on Christmas morning. Think of us as your film musical elves as we deliver a very special prize to you on Christmas Day to unwrap in your ears and enjoy. He'll be discussing Next Go Wins. Uh, in fact, if you haven't seen the documentary that came out maybe about seven or eight years ago, which the film is based on, then maybe over the next few days you can dig that out and watch it uh, before you watch Taika's interpretation of the story. Uh, Next Goal Wins is the name of the documentary and it's the name of Taika's brand new, brilliant, funny and emotional and beautiful film, which I'm so excited to share my conversation that I had with him with you about it. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>